a sermon podcast from the Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. There's many reasons that we love Jesus. Not only because of his cross and his resurrection, but also because of the gift that he promised would come, his Holy Spirit. If you remember his words, he said, the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. I think as believers, we, we kind of know some of that, what it was that he gave and he brought to us. But I don't know because we're talking about an eternal God, an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. I don't think we will ever be able to truly plumb the depths of all that Jesus has given to us. I can't wait to glory when we finally get a little bit of a better understanding of how the world and our faith works, when all of that will be made real to us. Our sister Grace Hildebrandt had her homecoming this last week. And uh, the Lord has been very faithful to her, and we invite you to her, uh, her celebration of life service next Saturday, um, and uh, we'll, we'll enjoy being together, but also being able to celebrate her life and her faith. The Lord truly was amazing in her life, and we want to celebrate that. But it is on this day, too, that we understand that with Pentecost Sunday, <clears throat> it brings so much more to this meal than just the body and the blood of Christ. It brings to us a reminder that it is for something far more than just a profession of faith that we live. It is for a life of incarnational living that we get to live before the world. And so as we get into God's Word today, we're going to be getting into a new series uh, called Welcome to the Table. And uh, you'll get the gist of it as we move into the, today's message. But we're going to begin by looking at one of the first meals that we see Jesus a part of, and that is the wedding supper at Cana. But uh, before we do, let's get into a posture being able to receive God's word today, and uh, let's bow our heads and our hearts. Oh God, with all our hearts, we long for you. Come, transform us to be Christ-centered, spirit-empowered. Lord, make us into the kind of people today, by your word, that you want us to be. And help us to gain a fresher appreciation of this Jesus that we all profess. And the life that we are called to live. We thank you for your word. We thank you that our kids get to learn downstairs from your word too. And Lord, it doesn't matter the age uh, the, the Bible is always age-appropriate. There are so many things that all ages can understand and get revelation of into their own lives. And we pray that today you would speak powerfully to our kids through their teachers, their helpers, through uh, everything from the Word and crafts and prayer, that, Lord, you would just magnify your Word in their hearts so that, Lord, as they grow up in this world, they're able <clears throat> to face the demands of life uh, with faith and great courage and hope. We bless you and thank you for this time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in April, we were concluding our series called Finding Your Keys to the Kingdom. 
And uh, one of the messages was about the future consummation of the kingdom of God and the heavenly banquet that we will all one day share in. And it struck me as I was studying for that message that Jesus spent a great part of his ministry revolved around food. And from his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, where he transformed water into wine, that was a banquet, that was a feast, a reception, a wedding reception. He also ate with tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. He shared a meal with Simon the Pharisee at his house, where he allowed a sinful woman to anoint his feet. In fact, he ate at a number of Pharisees' houses. He multiplied bread and fish for crowds of people to eat along with him and his disciples many times. He ate at the house of Simon the leper where he got, again, his feet anointed. And also at the, uh, at the house of Zacchaeus. And of course, we have the Last Supper, which is also a meal, right? There was also the three annual Jewish feasts, uh, the feast days that Jesus would have celebrated, like Passover, uh, like Shavuot, which is Pentecost today. There was also Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's just say Jesus ate at a lot of meals with people. And both Jewish and non-believing people, so much so that he apparently gained a reputation from the crowds as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Now, of course, he did eat and drink, but he wasn't a glutton or a drunkard. But he definitely was a friend of all those people, people that the Jewish leaders thought were unsavory and unclean. You know... Jesus is certainly the most well-known personality back in those days, but also in our own life networks today, isn't he? The people you know may not know who musicians like Drake and Paul Anka are. You'll have to Google that, young people, if you want to know who Paul Anka is. You probably know who Drake is. But they definitely will know who Jesus is. However, what they know and think about Jesus may not be all that accurate. And maybe you've run into that from time to time. I got thinking how many people Jesus, in Jesus' day, got to know him. And how did they get to know him? How did they learn about him, about his kingdom, which was of foremost importance on his mind, and about his mission? It appears that it happened mostly as people ate with him. The gospel transferred through meals, mostly. And when Jesus trained his disciples and showed them how to spread the gospel, the good news of the kingdom through the cities and the towns and the villages throughout Galilee, what did he, do? What did he tell them to do? Well, in Luke chapter 10, verses 5 and on, it says, when you, he said, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. Stay there, eat and drink whatever they give you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. That's what he taught the 12 and also the 72 disciples to do. This was his strategy for evangelism. And we see that after Pentecost, after Holy Spirit came to indwell and empower the church, we're told that the entire church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship gatherings. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, that is hospitality, not just communion. And they devoted themselves to much prayer. It appears the disciples and the early church continued Jesus' model of eating 
with their neighbors as the primary means of spreading the gospel. Not standing on the street corner or depending on a pastor to give an altar call at church, at a a place where non-believers just aren't attending, Jesus taught his followers that the gospel is spread easily, more easily by food than by any other means. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to 47, the scripture says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but non-believers aren't attending church much these days. They haven't been for a long, long time. Not even to attend special events or so-called outreaches of the church. They don't respond to gospel tracts in mailboxes and invites to come to church. For decades, churches across Canada have spent thousands of dollars on initiatives to try to attract people to church so that they could hear the gospel, but they rarely accomplish that. Pastors and elders all over are frustrated by the lack of conversion growth and the lack of baptisms they see. Stats Canada has found that religion is becoming less important for Canadians on on the whole. In 2019, 54% of Canadians reported that religious or spiritual beliefs were somewhat important or very important to their lives. And then in the mid-2000s, that number increased to 70%. However, while people think spirituality is important to them, they don't think it's important to attend any kind of religious service from any, other, from any kind of group. In fact, 53% of Canadians answered not at all to the question of frequency of attending a particular religious group or activity. Folks, overall, the church in Canada is shrinking. That's what the stats say, at least attendance-wise. There will be a couple of denominations that by 2040 will close their doors for good in Canada. And something that has contributed to that since COVID are a number of people who, even those who claim to be Christian, who would claim that on a Stats Canada survey, are choosing to watch church on live stream over attending in person. Clearly, church like this ain't the place where non-believers and even some believers want to engage with in order to satisfy their spiritual appetites. I don't know how you feel about all that, so if, we're not, if they're not engaging with the church community, with a church community, then where are they learning about Jesus? Social media? Probably not the best place to get our information about Jesus. His History Channel documentaries? Not a good place to learn about Jesus. In the gospel of Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus s- still shows us the relevancy of his kingdom and of his good news. Is it relevant to the people in your life network today, though? Of course it is. Is the kingdom of God still near them? Of course it is. Is church still important? Of course it is. Do you love the people of your life network and want them to discover the grace of Jesus for themselves? Of course you do. Then are we willing and adventurous enough to take a risk and try something different in order to introduce them to Jesus into his gospel kingdom. I'm not talking about evangelism as we typically think about it. I'm not even talking about being an evangelist, because not many people are. I'm talking about reclaiming the strategy of Jesus 
of just eating and drinking with your neighbors and with the people of your life network. With the hope that as we break bread in our homes and we eat together with glad and sincere hearts, and as you pray and you heal the sick, and as you hopefully have that opportunity with your neighbors, the people in your life network, hopefully they will then, in turn, learn to praise God with you and enjoy the favor, the gospel favor of the Lord himself by adding to your number daily those who are being saved. Before we get into the how, though, which we'll spend time in in the next weeks, we need to be reminded of the who. The who is Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Are you there? Is anybody out there? Yeah? You there? You found it? You found it? It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master at the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, "Um, everyone brings out the choices of wines first, and then the cheaper wine, in other words, after people have had a little bit too much to drink, they bring out the cheaper wine after the servants have had too much. But you have saved the best to last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples and there they stayed for a few days. <clears throat> Who doesn't like a good wedding, right? And, and most, mem- most weddings are quite memorable, but the most memorable part of the wedding is what? The food, Right? You don't remember at all what color of dresses the bridesmaids wore at the last wedding that you attended, do do you? Unless, of course, it was your own. But you do remember the food, don't you? You don't remember a stitch of what the pastor talked about from the pulpit at that wedding. But you will remember the food. If it was crappy food, you'll remember that. If it was a big spread, you'll remember that. Nobody remembers anything but the food. And imagine if the wedding reception that you were at, ran out of food or drink. Well, that would be quite an embarrassment, wouldn't it? By the bride and the groom. Well, that's the scene here in this small Jewish village in Cana. And it was a wedding reception then on the brink of disaster. Now, John says that all this happened on the third day. The third day of Jesus' public ministry. He had just been called out by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
John baptized him, and Jesus began calling a few disciples, Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel. These men have just started to learn who Jesus was. They've just started to learn what following Jesus meant. And so they don't really know him that well at this point. But as the story ends, we'll see that they end up putting their faith in him. Just like today, you only invite to a party the number of people that you can afford to feed. We don't know exactly why Jesus was invited. I think maybe the groom was a third cousin or something. uh, Because Mary seemed a little bit, Mary, Jesus' mother, seemed a little bit invested in this bride and groom. And wanted and didn't want them to face any kind of shame. John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, A wedding took place in Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. And you've probably heard before that weddings back then were much longer events than they are today. It wasn't unusual to have a wedding feast last for several days. And that meant that a family needed to have a lot of food and a lot of drink. At this reception, they ran out of wine. Either more guests attended than were expected, or they drank way more than was expected, or the bride's and groom's parents didn't buy enough at the outset. Either way, this would have meant great shame for the bride and groom and their families. This wedding was on the brink of disaster. Now, being sympathetic... Jesus' mother, Mary, feels badly for them, and she tells her son the situation. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Why did Mary go to Jesus? It's not his problem. He certainly didn't have any money to buy more wine. He had just recently quit his job as as a tradesman, as a construction worker, and he was now involved in a new ministry venture. And as you know, most new ministries and ministers don't make a lot of money at the outset. Verse 11 tells us something important. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of of the signs through which he would reveal his glory. You, know, you all know what Jesus is going to do for these newlyweds, so it's not a spoiler alert to tell you right at the outset that he was going to produce a miracle so that new wine would be offered. But this was, as the text says, the first of the signs through which he would reveal his glory. In other words, this was the first of his public miracles that proved him to be the Son of God. Obviously, Whatever he could do was knowledge that only his mother had. Because we know from later accounts in the Gospels that the people of his own hometown of Nazareth never saw him do anything miraculous growing up. But it's clear from Mary's response that she already knew what he was capable of and she went to him for help. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary is confident that he can help this poor couple out. This is what she knew about her son Jesus. Number one, Jesus always made time to put people before plans. Jesus always made time to put people before plans. Now, Jesus' answer is surprising. He starts out by saying, Woman, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. 
Sounds kind of gruff, doesn't it? I mean, it, if I had ever called my mom woman, I would have gotten the back of her hand, I think, growing up. Maybe even at the age of 30 here like Jesus. But I'm thinking that his response was his way of emphasizing to Mary that they had come into a new relationship. That it wasn't the ideal time to go public with who he really was as a son of God. And all I can see from her response is kind of like a my big fat Greek wedding mom kind of response. Do you ever see that movie? Verse 4 says, Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She, she doesn't even listen to him. I picture her like a kind of a good Middle Eastern mother. Do whatever he tells you to do. And it's like she says to him, you don't, you don't talk to your mother that way. You do what I tell you to do. And then he goes, she swings around, and she's barking out orders to the servants. I've read commentators saying that my hour has not yet come means that Jesus wasn't sent to earth to rescue people from social embarrassment and save weddings, wedding parties from failure. <clears throat> that he had his eyes on a far greater miracle, namely the cross and the salvation of humankind. I got thinking about that and I thought, you know, that can't be right. Because a few times Jesus does a similar miracle like when the crowds are all listening to Jesus teach and his disciples get nervous because they don't have anything to feed the crowds of people that are around him and Jesus multiplies bread and fish, does it a couple of times. So that Peter doesn't offend the, tax, uh, the collector of the temple tax, Jesus produces a coin out of, the, out, of the fish of, out of the mouth of a fish to be able to supply what Peter owed. Certainly, Jesus wasn't into parlor tricks but he obviously wasn't opposed to helping people in need, like a newlywed couple in the middle of a shameful moment. It's true that whenever Jesus uses the phrase, my hour has not yet come, he is referring to the cross. But there must have been something we're not getting from this statement here in John 2, because many times, more times than we can count and apparently have record of, <clears throat> Jesus performed many signs and wonders well before the cross. I think my hour has not yet come has something to do with the statement at the end of the scene. And it says, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Even here in John 2, Jesus is on his way to the cross. And until that hour, all his miracles, including this one, would be for the point, the fact that he was the Heavenly Father's Son. And for whatever reason, whether he wanted that made known at this point or not, we don't really know. So he is reluctant, it appears. But he's not unwilling to be gracious. And that's what Mary knew about her son. His grace guided his plans, not the other way around. And that's the first thing we need to reclaim about Jesus. Jesus always made time to put people before plans. And when he intervenes, that's when we get a glimpse of his glory. And so will the unbelievers. Number two. Second point is this. Jesus is not afraid to break the rules of religion. Jesus is not afraid to break the rules of religion. 
verse 6. <clears throat> Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. You have to understand, these jars were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That means they were meant for and used for a specific purpose, a ceremonial purpose, a religious purpose. Using them for any other purpose would make them unclean. And that meant that they couldn't be used for ceremonial washing again. By using them, Jesus is breaking a number of ceremonial and religious rules. And he didn't just cross the line a bit. The jars were filled to the brim, it says. And that text then contains the words 20 to 30 gallons. How much is that? That's about six bathtubs full of water. That's a lot of water. That's going to produce a lot of wine. Now, this wouldn't be the first time Jesus broke the rules. From healing on the Sabbath to eating with unwashed hands to eating with unclean people to allowing the disciples to pick grain on someone's field to, well, just, he was constantly doing things to upset the religious establishment. But Jesus didn't break rules just to be a rebel. Jesus always had a greater point to show. He didn't just break the rules here. Instead, he reclaimed the jars and repurposed them in the way that God had intended them to be used. What mattered to Jesus was not keeping the rules, but helping hurting people. Grace is always more important than law. This is important to keep in mind as we get into the rest of our series. Because if we want to introduce people to Jesus, we can't get caught up in right and wrong. The people in your life network come from all kinds of different backgrounds and lifestyles. I'm sure that you have people in your, in your life network who, who drink wine. Maybe too much wine. <clears throat> you have people in your life network who are atheists and Wiccans and different religions. You have people in your life network who are gay or transgendered. What was Jesus' response to people who thought and acted differently, irreligiously, or even wickedly? Well, he hung out at weddings where there is always a lot of drinking going on. And then he created even more wine for them. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He, he let a prostitute wash his feet with her hair. He did the whole, he who is without sin, let them cast the first stone for a woman who was caught in adultery. John 3.16, we have the famous Scripture that we all know and love, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Then we, we don't normally read the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How much do we really believe that? If we want people to know Jesus, let's make sure it's the right Jesus, not a condemning Jesus but a Jesus of grace, of love, who's not so much concerned about the rules as we are about grace. 
Let's make sure it's the right Jesus and not the Jesus of our own making in order to support our rules or our thoughts of what is right and wrong. Jesus was not afraid to break rules of religion, but to reveal his glory and the glory of his Father. Number three, in the hands of Jesus, ordinary things become like the best of wines. In the hands of Jesus, ordinary things become the best of wines. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, you know, everyone brings out the choicest of wines first and then the cheaper stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. There's an impromptu wine tasting going on here. And I love this. The master of ceremonies is shocked because he knew the wine was gone. Where did this come from, he wonders. And when he samples it, it's not just wine, okay? It's really good wine. The best vintage of wine from the finest of vineyards in Canaan. Try to appreciate the miracle of this. Winemaking takes a lot of time to produce really good wine. From the harvesting of the grapes to the crushing and then the pressing and then the fermentation and then the clarification and then bottling and aging. New wine is not that great, but aged wine is the best of wines. And it's not a process that can be rushed. And here, in this miracle, Jesus produces the best of wines. One of the reasons we get caught up in the rules of religion is because we don't really believe that Jesus can do the miraculous and transform certain people in his own time. We try to rush the process. We always rush the process by expecting behavior change before heart change. And we throw our rules at them and we rush them and we aren't very willing to let Jesus transform them on his schedule. This is a good news story. A wedding disaster averted, and everyone goes home happy, if not a little tipsy. But it's more than that. Remember, this is a sign, pointing us to a deeper truth through the events of a wedding. Listen to what John says, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's not clear who was all privy to this miracle. Mary knew, of course. Moms always know, right? All the bride and groom knew was that there must have been a secret stash of wine somewhere in a back room. The master of ceremonies didn't know either. He just thought that the groom had been saving the best wine to the end. The servants who filled the water jars, they knew. They understood. And I can't imagine that they would have kept something like this a secret. And the disciples knew. And all it says is his disciples then believed in him. It seems like it was for that inner circle that this miracle was understood. And those who understood it then responded to it in faith. It was a revelation of Jesus' glory as the Son of God, the worker of miracles. 
And this son is very much concerned with rescuing people from the impossible. In fact, he won't just turn water into wine. One day, he will save all of humanity from their sins. One day, the Holy Spirit will come and overflow these vessels with not just water, but the choicest of wines. If we want the people in our life network to see Jesus as we see him, then why don't we adopt his way of eating with them? How are they going to learn about him, about his kingdom, about his glory, about his mission, about his amazing grace, and that he is for them? It appears that food and drink play a large role in the glory of Jesus being displayed. To to the believer, we come to the table, this table, and we come quite often to what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, to the Eucharist, as some traditions call it. But no matter what we call it, it's it's a table that we are all invited to. No matter what we call it, it's a table we are all invited to. And we're told to celebrate it, to proclaim it, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, communion wasn't like what we experience it today. It wasn't this formal until religion got a hold of it. It was a meal before that that people ate in homes together. They broke bread with glad and sincere hearts. They enjoyed the favor of God and man. It was a celebration. It was fashioned around the Passover, which had as its theme going throughout it the the rescue or the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And that played heavily into what Jesus had in mind for this meal, that he would provide deliverance for Israel once again, once and for all, that he was the Passover lamb. And so when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we are reflecting back on that last supper of Jesus. We're reflecting back on the Passover. We're reflecting on the deliverance that God provided for us miraculously by delivering his people from their sins. So the only rule, well actually it's more of a consideration, was that you come to the table understanding and accepting Jesus' work on the cross for yourself. And so as we eat this bread and we drink this cup this morning, we come celebrating and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We should never lose sight of the cross. But we should also never lose sight of the fact that the gospel is understood and it's spread through eating together with other people. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and take their places at the communion stations. We have two up here at the front, and we have one at the back behind our sound booth there for those in the balcony. As they and the worship team come forward, I want you to spend just a moment considering the Lord's death, considering what communion is all about, his body, his blood, his sacrifice, his offering for you and for me, that by it, we can have salvation and deliverance from sin. Let's pause to pray. O Lord, God of creation, 
We're reminded that before anything ever came to be, it said that your spirit was hovering over the waters, over the chaos waters of a primordial universe. And it was by your spirit that things began to take form and function. And Lord, in these days, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, we are reminded that from the very beginning till now, the purpose of our salvation is to bring us peace with God. Your Holy Spirit is the mediator of that to us through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come around this table this morning, Lord, Lord, we come professing that. And as we profess that and we eat together, we're remembering exactly what kind of miracle Jesus performed for us. That by his death, we may have life. Wow. That's truly, truly awe-inspiring. Lord, help us to be in awe by this meal today. And help us to take from what we are learning of Jesus as a challenge to eat with people more, to invite them into our homes more, to offer hospitality and bread and food and drink in order for the gospel to make its way into their hearts and lives. Lord, we love you and we're grateful for this meal today. And we celebrate it knowing full well that you are coming again, Lord Jesus. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. And we ask you to be our guest at this meal today. In Christ's name, amen.